Welcome back to Butter With That, a movies podcast where some friends, Philadelphia, come together to talk about all things movies. Today, I'm joined by Sam, Dave, and Christine. How is everybody doing today? I feel the exact same <laughs> way. Just that nice, prolonged silence that I feel the same way, but I am happy to see everybody virtually, happy to kick off a new theme. Um, we just wrapped up our theme on robots and we are jumping into what we're calling a grab bag quote-unquote theme uh four films that we just wanted to pick for the hell of it either we haven't really found a category to put it in or we've been trying to work it in for a little bit uh and so four assortments of random movies and so it'll be interesting at the end of it to see if there are any crossovers or similarities with themes that's always interesting to think about especially if they're four totally random movies so aside from everybody feeling that long silence, <laughs> uh, has anybody been watching anything interesting recently? I caught up on and then finished Loki. The last episode, what a letdown. Um, but you know what? The series had a lot of work to do to set up, I think, the the future of the Marvel Universe. So like, I can cut it some slack. Um, I just think that the the last episode was too confusing and unnecessary. So whatever. People liked it. People are calling it the best thing that Marvel's ever done. I don't agree, but hey, it was still a fun ride. I also watched Finished Loki. I liked the last episode, but I agree with your point, Sam, without getting into any spoilers. I haven't really watched... Oh, I watched the first two Twilights because they just came back on Netflix. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, so those are just fun, fun things to just throw on and laugh at and just to be confused by. The first one is one of the funniest fucking movies to watch. Honest to God, if you just need to like completely disconnect and feel better about yourself, watch that movie. The scene where she walks into the lab and then he smells her and like vomits in his mouth, like what it looks like is probably the funniest thing in movie history. Yeah, that whole movie. I would say the whole Twilight series is worth a watch, but you could skip the second one if you had to skip any of them. Yeah. Christine, have you been watching Twilight? No, I have not, but I've been watching no movies uh, because I started rewatching the OC again. So last summer I did this where I, for God knows what reason, decided to start rewatching season one and two. And then I kind of fell off at towards the middle of season three and I've started, I picked it back up again for again, God knows why, for what reason. Um, well, actually, no, I, I knew the reason. It was I wanted to at least get to Marissa's death at the end of season three. And like to get, you know, you hear oh, three seasons, that's like nothing. It's three seasons of hour of 27 hour long episodes. So that is a shit ton of content. And so I was like, OK, I'll at least make it to the end of season three. Just a casual dip back into that pool. Um, well, I got to Marissa's death and then I was like, okay, like the same night I was watching, I was like, okay, maybe I'll just like watch like 10 minutes of the first episode of season four. It was the last season. Then the show got canceled. I was like, you know, I just want to like get a flavor. So I did. And I like the beginning, I was like, okay, I, this is great. I, this is not my jam. I'll just turn it off and then put the OC back on the shelf where it belongs. But then it got like super brooding and they're all mourning Marissa's death. And then there's the scene where Ryan is like now in like a fighting cage at the back of this bar. And then placebo's cover of running up that hill starts playing. And I just was like, oh, OK. All right. All right. All right. It, it like lured me back in. And so, yeah, that's now I'm in the middle of that shit and it's total trash. But um, but like kind of like Twilight, you just turn it on to just have a few laughs and then. I don't know, not have to think about your life. <laughs> it's like, it serves a very um, specific purpose. So that's what I've been up to. Is is that the person who dies where the song goes, ooh, what you say? Uh, is that? The song, that song repeats throughout the whole show. Um, actually, I'm not quite, I can't remember what song is playing in her. Her death is so stupid. 
she gets run off the road. Like, it's just like, no, it's so, yeah. Excuse me. I don't want to reduce her. It was, it was an impactful moment on the show, but like, it was like so dumb. Um, anyhow, you don't need to listen to this. <laughs> yeah. I suppose similar to everyone else. I've been, um, I've been a little exhausted lately. And there's been a lot going on. Um, so I've been a bit distracted, I guess, uh, like everyone else in the, in the midst of all these, uh, distractions, I've been just sort of going back to comfort food television. And I went back to, um, the Simpsons have been watching a whole lot of the Simpsons lately. Uh, just kind of going through the back catalog, like the early, you know, the early golden years. I've, I've kind of gone through all of those again now. And, um, and I'm sort of seeing how far I can take it. I've made it to season 11 and it's still pretty funny, but you can start to starting to smell the mildew a little bit. Um, so it's, you know, it's the Simpsons. I I've, been on record on the show before stating that I think, you know, the first 10 seasons are uh, some of the best TV has to offer, but also uh, really takes a, a steep dive at a certain point. So I'm approaching uh, approaching the ledge with, uh, with the substance as far as quality goes. I've also just been really ravenously researching uh, information for uh, an upcoming episode that... Uh, that involves a lot of uh, a lot of legwork and a lot of research. Um, <clears throat> so I haven't really uh, haven't done a lot of uh, new watches or, or seen a lot of new uh, media recently. Been going back to some old uh, creature comforts. Uh, one of which, uh, of course, uh, nearly finishing Evangelion, which uh, I understand somebody here has uh, has also started watching. I have started. To have you watch. progressed? Um, I watched two more episodes so um, we're up to episode four then correct yeah okay um you know it's it's taking me a little bit longer i think that um while i love animation i think i always it it, it takes me a little bit to get into it same thing with clone wars it took me a very long time to get into it and finish it um but I'm interested. I I like the concept. I can't believe I'm here in this moment. But yeah, I like it. Yeah, I'll be looking forward to more updates because um, beyond a certain point, yeah, I, I imagine those uh, those reports, the reporting back is going to get a little grimmer as it continues. But uh, but yeah, the first uh, I'd say the first uh, two thirds of the show are very fun. So looking forward to hearing uh, hearing more about your thoughts on all that. And I consider this a win that we got Sam to at least start it. <laughs> there's a part of me that like hates myself a little bit just because and not for any real reason just it, the only reason being that like everybody suddenly was watching this and i was like not me i'm going to put my foot down and now well, here we are well this could be reciprocal what do you think that we should watch hmm. that we wouldn't necessarily think to watch uh-huh. You can sit on it. Just like yeah. sit on that. Meditate on oh, interesting. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Right? This, this is a this is an exchange of of interests. Okay. <laughs> Sam mulls this over through the whole episode. <laughs> think about this now. <laughs> Uh, before we jump into talking about my pick for Grab Bag Month, we did receive an email since the last time we recorded. Are you serious? From, I am dead serious. Uh, from longtime listener Diana. Oh, uh, friend yay, to us all. And she yeah. has some thoughts about Mayor Vistap. Oh. Kind of talking yes. about what we okay. were discussing. Bring it on. So, Can't wait. So, subject line just one more thing about Mayor Vistap. Listen, I know everyone is over talking about Mayor of Easttown, and we're all done discussing uh, the interesting take on the Philly Delco accent. But can we talk about how the costume designer for the show, Megan Kasperlich, who also did the costumes for Dark Knight, Roses, and Watchmen, drew inspiration from customers in line at Wawa for the show? I believe we might have touched on this in our discussion. Uh, she would take pictures of people in line and text them to the director. Did she have permission? of these people to do so? Probably not, so it's creepy. Also, the last time I was at a Wawa, a man ahead of me was not wearing shoes or a shirt, but he still got service. And that's one and that's one of the more tame, quote unquote, outfits I've seen. What kind of outfits did Casper Lick text to the director? Was there a scene with Kate Winslet wearing fleece Tweety Bird pajama pants, the Super Bowl uh, 52 t-shirt, and worn out sliders while ordering a hoagie? I haven't actually watched the show, but I'm fairly certain she doesn't, and I'm mad about it. Also, Wawa spokesperson came out with a statement saying this, quote, we're proud of our we're proud that our customers and associates are a true reflection of the people in the region who passionately wear apparel that support their hometown teams, universities, brands, etc. 
end quote. Wawa really went in that. Sheets could never be as iconic. Okay, bye, Diana. Thank you, Diana, for your email. Oh my God, excellent take and uh, investigation of, of the relationship between clothing scouting and Wawa and what we see on the show. Yeah. Excellent questions. There's always been something about that that has rubbed me the wrong way. I still am like not able to really put my finger on it or articulate it, but yeah, I'm glad people are still talking about it. But also, I, I don't know if we actually said this in an episode. I've never watched Mayor of Easttown, but I have such fond memories of it now because Connor, um, at your wedding, we were all talking about it and your moms came over and we're just like, you're talking about Mayor of Easttown. <laughs> and then joined him and it was incredible so that's definitely on the shelf of some of my favorite memories she, uh, my mom told me late I, I asked her about that after a few different people told me that happened and she's like I just wanted to make friends with your friends well thank you mom thank you Diana for your lovely email um if you want to have your voice read on butter with that uh, email us at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I'll read more hot takes about Mayor of Easttown or hot takes or general thoughts or comments about anything that we've discussed or any movies or you know television shows that you are interested in. That email just made my day. Oh my gosh. Thank you for reading it, Connor. Diana, thank you for writing that. Oh, yes, bring it on. More content. Yeah, good research. All right, so let's dive into Can You Ever Forgive Me? This is... Uh, a relatively new movie for me. I actually watched it at the behest of Christine, uh, maybe in 2018 or 2019 after it came out. Uh, you recommended this movie. Uh, it was nominated for a few Oscars. And so I watched it probably right around Oscar season and really fell in love with it, really enjoyed this movie. But I never could quite figure out the right theme to pick for it. Um, it kind of has a unique tone. Uh, biopics are not really my thing generally. So I would never really want to do like, let's do biopic month. That's just not something personally I would be super invested, you know, person, you know, depending. And so I thought this would be a really great pick for grab bag month as a film that is kind of, you know, different, does some different things um, and does a lot of things that I like a lot before we sort of dive into it. Uh, has anybody seen Christine? I know you saw it cause you recommended it to me, uh, but Sam or Dave, did you see, can you ever forgive me before this episode? No, I hadn't even heard of it. I had seen it once before. Uh, so this was uh, my second go around. Excellent. Uh, well, before we get to your guys' thoughts, I wanted to just do a quick sort of synopsis of what is Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, it is a film released on October 19th, 2018, uh, starring uh, Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant. Uh, it had a budget of about $10 million and made only $12.4 million at the box office. So Ooh. did not really make a whole lot of money. Uh, nominated for a lot of awards, uh, including three Oscar nominations for Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Overall, the movie was incredibly well-received. It has a 98% critical rating on Rotten Tomatoes and a very high audience score as well. And here's just a brief synopsis for folks who have uh, never seen it or if you haven't even heard of it. Can You Ever Forgive Me is an adaptation of real-life author Lee Israel's 2008 memoir by the same name. Melissa McCarthy stars as Israel, who begins a letter-forging scheme after she is fired from her job, is months behind on rent, and her older cat is becoming sick. She teams up with an old acquaintance named Jack Hawk. Hawk, played by Richard E. Grant, is a con man who enables Israel's duplicitous forgery and the pair go on to make thousands of dollars. Eventually, the authorities and the literary community turn wise on the scheme and the whole operation falls apart. So I hope that did a good job for summing up what is Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, it was directed by Marielle Heller, who directed 2019's A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Uh, that's the Mr. Rogers movie starring Tom Hanks. And it was written by Nicole Holofencer and Jeff Whitty, who also won a Tony for writing the book for the musical Avenue Q, which I thought was interesting. So just sort of first impressions, uh, Sam, I think start with you. Sort of what did you think kind of coming into this movie, not ever hearing of it, coming in ostensibly blind? What a fascinating story. You'd think that because it involves forgery and it's relatively recent that this would be kind of like more known, more well talked about, but um, I couldn't believe it. And it really made me wonder how many other 
letters or historic documents we use are forged are forged um so you know nothing quite like being um forced into existential crisis while you're watching a movie you gotta love that i was also like furious at the end with um her sentence um what she gets it what was it like a couple months on house arrest and then six years probation furious for a lot of different reasons is that the 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 right sentence she should have uh, received i don't know uh what her crime is compared to the crime of many other people who get much much more time um it's just so fascinating um so a lot of a lot of feelings came up for me but um some of the things about the movie that i i have questions about or just didn't like so first of all like um it was uh, i hate to say this but it was really boring um i i really wanted it to just move a little bit faster um i think that like there was a, a certain point where I'm like okay i get it like i get what she's doing I, like I, I i know i get it i get it um move on and um nope we watched all of it you know and um, I was also like really confused with the time frame. So it's happening in the 90s, but the way that it's shot and the way that everything is like colorized, the clothes that people are wearing, it made me think it was like in the 70s the whole time. And I, like frequently I had to be like, no, this is the 90s. This is the 90s. So like, and the fact that it wasn't that long ago when this all happened, just whew, unbelievable. But I think my roommates and I, we decided that we gave it a, you didn't hate it, didn't love it. I'll take that. Thank you, Sam. Um, interesting thoughts on pacing. And do you think that that was more just a quick question? Do you think that, that was more a script issue or a way it was edited or shot? Probably script. I mean, like, you know, they they just had to keep those scenes. Well, okay. So maybe it's both, right? The They wrote these scenes and then they kept the scenes. <laughs> Maybe you should have trimmed just a little bit more. Interesting. Thanks for sharing. Uh, how about uh, Christine or Dave, your thoughts on returning to Can You Ever Forgive Me? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love that as a director, Marielle Heller, like, doesn't absolve, like, the character of Lee Israel of, like, what she ends up doing. But at the same time, I thought the slow pacing was sort of an intentional way to give the viewer just sort of, like, kind of a day-to-day insight into her life and into, like, her relationship uh, with Richard E. Grant's character, who's, like, escaping my brain right now. Jack. Uh, Jack, Uh, right. And uh, I also just love how the movie, it's, like, it's a true story. So it's, like, there's not too much, like, exciting, like, police chases or whatever. I don't know, like, what would sort of infuse it with more energy. I feel like there's a framework within which they have to work because it's a true story, but not to say you can't make, yeah, whatever. Uh, but um, I, what I love about the movie is that it like also portrays Lee as this kind of, um, as this sort of literary outsider, but clearly she's witty, she's smart, she's like good at her job, but she's she's got this like, doesn't play by the rules streak, which is cool. And it also, like, through her story reveals the, like, hypocrisy of the entire rare book, rare letter world and industry. It's like, I love just how things unfold. The more things unfold, the more you realize that buyers will just buy things as long as they know that they can sell it to somebody else. And there's a line at one point that was just like, most people will just believe whatever you tell them. And so I think the movie just does a wonderful job of not only focusing on a very singular, interesting person, but also pulls out and really looks at her relationship with an already flawed industry and and system. Um, And its scope is not huge. Like it's like wonderfully just sort of set in pockets of New York, like, uh, you know, in her apartment and the bar in the village and the Upper West Side, you know, things like that. Um, so I kind of liked the small scope and kind of the slow pace, but, um, I just, I love that it not only is sort of like a character or like a person study, but also kind of shedding light on this, this interesting world of like books and, and letter trading and selling and, and verification, like off 
authenticity verification. I'm so glad you brought up those points because I think this also, watch, re-watching it for me this time, made me think about what is the writer, the director, the editor's job when taking a memoir and then also turning it into a movie, like what parts of you know a film script or forged, quote unquote, to like flesh out a person's life or to make things a little more exciting or to make things sort of feel more like a movie. So, and on top of, I have this in my notes later, but on top of the controversy with the Anthony Bourdain documentary that just came out, um, which also was kind of in the back of my head thinking about what does it mean to be authentic and forging and ethical. Oh, the recreation of his voice. Like yeah. in those particular, yeah, that's a really interesting conversation. Uh, Dave, how about you? I feel like I somehow simultaneously agree with all these opinions. I mean, uh, I, I enjoyed the movie a whole lot the first time I saw it um, because I really didn't know anything about the story. I was really uh, drawn into its presentation and um, was really, really attracted to the the entire. I mean, obviously, the it's, you know, it being a true story, I was really attracted to um, a, a sort of more. I don't know. It's a very interesting snapshot of uh, both uh, that serves as both a character study biopic and also uh, Christine, as you alluded to, an almost not unspoken. It's it's pretty well established uh, critique of uh, of sort of like prestige literary collection and, and things like that, and and the literary world itself. You know, with a- agents that are a little less enthusiastic about your work if you're not peddling material that that garnishes larger returns and so on and how difficult and restrictive that can be. So I found all those elements to be really captivating and really engaging the first time I saw it. The second time I watched it, I would say I have to agree with Sam as concerns the pacing of the film. I think that for a 107-minute film, it feels like a film that's over two hours to me. I think maybe because I, and I think I don't, I don't know I don't know that it's a script. I think it's the pace and stylization of its editing. We spend a lot of time in individual scenes and really let them breathe, which is a strength in a way. But it's also a movie that I think the momentum of its story and its events kind of dominoing could have been accelerated by something like maybe like here or there, like some montages with some overlaid narration or something like that. Just something to kind of step on the gas a little bit as far as the stylization and pace of its editing. And I also agree that a lot of the set design was a little confusing because yeah, Sam, as you mentioned, and as we talked about off pod, it's, it's definitely, yeah, it's a movie set in 1991 that does have like the color palette and a a lot of scenic dressing of like, like mid 1970s film, which is a little confusing. I don't necessarily hold it against it, but I did find it distracting the second time. Um, So I, I think it's maybe one of those movies where I don't know that I'll watch it too many times because Within the two times, it's been diminished returns, um, but I I don't think it's a bad film, and uh, I think it's got a lot of strengths that it, it boasts pretty boldly in a way that a lot of movies don't, uh, that I'm looking to forward to getting into a little bit later via your notes here. So uh, I'd say, yeah, mixed bag, but I, I I favored it more than I disliked it. But yeah, maybe a little bit of a, maybe a little bit of a pacing issue for me. I love those comments, because I also sort of, it feels like, there's a moment where she enters a bookstore later. This is like maybe two thirds of the way through the movie. And you think that like, that's when she's going to get caught, but it's not another like 20 minutes until like that, the feds are like actually like actively coming after her and Jack. So really love those comments and those thoughts. Yeah. I think this is for me a really good pick for grab bag because it is sort of like a hard movie to nail down. Um, It's not like my favorite movie ever, but one that I, you know, upon rewatch still really enjoy. And I think for me, the biggest enjoyment comes from Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant. Um, I didn't know that this was going to be like a odd couple sort of dynamic movie. And I think that's where a lot of the narrative strength, the emotional thematic strength comes through is with these two characters. I've only seen Melissa McCarthy in just garbage, (laughs) either really bad TV or unfunny movies for me. Like I've just never really before this have seen her in a whole lot of stuff. And what I did see, I just thought was kind of like lazy comedy. Uh, but she really turns in a great performance in here. Dave, look like you had a comment. Yeah, how about Bridesmaids? Oh, you're that? right. Yeah, she is great. I, say, I, I like her in that. I think it's a pretty strong movie. Retract that strong opinion. Jet, <laughs> most, a lot of things I've seen her in, I feel like don't use her talent as much. Well, she's she. Uh, there was a period after that where I think that that sort of defined her career as like, a, a, a yeah, a 
woman Chris Farley for a while, where it's just sort mm-hmm. of like, you know, here, here's someone that can fall down and that'll be funny, you know, that kind of thing. But, but yeah, she definitely shows some chops here. I agree. And I think a really well deserved Oscar nomination on the podcast before we've talked about people who don't deserve nominations or movies that don't deserve awards. But I really think this is, I think it goes to script. It goes to performance, a character who, as you know, Christine brought up is sort of unlikable. Um, she's like a stick in the mud. She's grouchy. She doesn't play by anybody's rules. And I think this would be a really easy character to just sort of have it be like a caricature. Um, but I think McCarthy brings a lot of heart to Israel while still keeping that sort of um, callous uh, shell. I think that there's a lot of really great moments of when um, we're sort of led into her personal world, um, kind of beyond the booze, beyond the cursing, um, to sort of the sad life that she lives and sort of feeling stuck. And I think Richard E. Grant as well as Jack Hawk is the sort of, it's unclear what his profession, <laughs> if he ever kind of had a profession, sort of a grifter, a con man sort of type. But I think the two of them together and I would not think that ever think of Richard E. Grant and Melissa McCarthy as like a really good duo to put together. Um, but I think I really enjoyed them in this movie. Any sort of thoughts on our two lead performances? Yeah, they're both great. Um, and both very convincing. I mean, um, as, yeah, as you've alluded to, I mean, um, McCarthy does a great job of bringing Israel's passion and tenacity for <clears throat> for literature and for literary history and for the craft and nuance of the written word, especially when she starts writing through other people's voices. It clearly shows that she's very well researched and very informed about narrative voice. Uh, although at the same time, you know, we know her books not to be selling very well. So she herself is, is sort of in this awkward position of being a true talent who is unrecognized or restricted by the industry. Um, and does a really good job of balancing. Yeah. That, that in spite of those things, she is, I mean, she is doing herself no favors in a lot of ways in this devil may care play by her rules thing. But but I think that we come to sensibly understand via her like slice of life vignettes and how how much we start investigating and navigating her day to day life, why those boundaries exist. Uh, and I think she does a really good job of bringing that to life uh, in a way that I would imagine is, is a little bit difficult given the script. I think the script is pro- it's seems like the character on the page is pretty restricted, but she really brings, breathes a lot of life into it through her performance. And Richard E. Grant is fantastic. Um, I mean, he, he plays his part really well. He's, uh, you know, very, um, but by contrast, very, uh, very affable, very sociable, very confident. And, uh, I think the two of them pitted against each other, create a really, really interesting balance, uh, that says a lot about, uh, the gay and queer community in the 1990s and late 1980s. Um, that uh, I'm looking forward to discussing more as we continue. So I think, yeah, the both of them really bring some very real chops to their performances and illuminate these characters uh, that on the page, I would think reading the script itself probably wouldn't shine nearly as much if you would cast someone else. I just love the scene towards the beginning of the movie when Lee's trying to get her agent to like let her do any, or like set her up for some more projects or like, you know, be interested in the, the, the project she wants to like to start. I can't, what's the, what's the book where she's like, no, nobody's interested in a book about Fanny Bryce, (laughs) which I didn't know. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, she was like a big vaudeville comedian and Barbara Streisand played her in funny, funny face, funny girl, funny girl, funny girl, funny face is another one. Um, anyhow, um yeah so anyhow I was like not get picking up on these references and I was like looking it up I was like oh okay so it's like these stories are like also wonderfully rooted in like also positioning Lee as like another woman in this long line of like worlds that were restricting women's ability to to either perform or write and I love that so Back to my point is this early scene where she goes to one of her agents' big, like, fancy soirees. And in the background, Tom, this guy playing Tom Clancy is, like, in a circle. And he's like, oh, you know, writer's block was made up by the writing community to justify laziness. Or, what? you know, it's... This Wait, is that actually of, supposed to be Tom Clancy? Mm-hmm. Within the, yeah. Oh, I didn't catch that. Okay. 
And well, I mean, that tracks, like but male bravado. And then later on, you have this like blow up conversation between Lee and the agent again, where she, where the agent also representing Tom Clancy's like he's selling, you know, thousands of books and making so much money because like he does the press tours. He talks to people and Lee's like, I don't want to do that bullshit. I just want to write what I want to write. And I want to focus on the stories I want to focus on. And so, like, I just love certain scenes like that, that like, and then she steals a fur coat and like takes toilet paper. So it's a wonderful, like, these are scenes that are like great in positioning her kind of as this, like, as we said, like doesn't play by the rules, but also positioning her in relation to sort of these, the the literary world that like in many ways, like restricted uh, women's ability, like people's ability who uh, to, to make it, who didn't want to conform to this, like the necessity of having an, you know, outsized personality and wanting to chat everybody up in the room and do all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, that would suck to be put in a position where you're like, I can't get work because I, I don't fulfill this particular mold or I'm not like, you know, uh, a male writer who can get really famous. Cause I can just talk shit all the time. <laughs> I suppose I would add one thing actually that relates to that, um, you know, being stymied by an industry is uh, as soon as I said it, the thought occurred to me also that, you know, obviously uh, I do think these two actors do a great job with these characters that haven't been said. They are uh, two straight individuals playing gay characters. I'm looking up something here now. Grant uh, had said in an advocate article <clears throat> regarding that uh, his decision to take on the role that he's always had that concern. Uh, the transgender movement and the Me Too movement means how can you justify heterosexual actors playing gay, gay characters? Uh, went on to say that we're in a historic moment. Uh, if you want someone to play a disabled role, that should be a disabled actor. And I understand how that current mood has come about. So he's spoken about it. Uh, was but that I, after the movie came out? After this oh, film, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a great point. Can I also say that it's like particularly important because of like the last scene of the movie when they don't go as far as saying it out loud, but it's pretty obvious that Jack is dying and he's dying of AIDS. And mm-hmm. so like that is such a dark period of time in American history that is so fucking recent and we don't really acknowledge that much so to see it again and having like a a, a straight person having that moment I, I don't know it, it definitely makes me feel uncomfortable I mean there's also Philadelphia I mean that would have been 1993 of a Tom Hanks playing a gay man dying of AIDS and and so on. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily have an answer to it. And I don't, I don't know that, you know, I don't know that it necessarily diminishes the quality of their performances, but I don't know that it was necessarily the right decision. So I don't know, mixed bag on that one as well. I'm glad this point's getting brought up now because in the, um, my notes, this is the first question I ask. you know, how do you feel about the depiction of queer characters? And in, I guess, probably early 2019, when I watched this movie, I didn't really think about that aspect at all. So this sort of just reminded me of my own just thinking and, you know, growing the thinking and thinking about what roles should look like and who should be casting. And so that was, I feel like, an interesting layer that I'm glad we're talking about, because I think the performances are really great, but should those roles have gone to other people? But they also did a really, I think, stellar job, you know, knocking it out of the park with this movie. So... It's definitely something I wish happened significantly less. So that way this was maybe like a one-off, but that's not the world that we've been living in. Yeah, I'd say also in answer to that question, I mean, it's it's a complicated thing too, where like now I'm, I'm walking back my suggestion that maybe, uh, maybe it was a, a script problem and that these actors uh, outperform the script because the script does a great job acknowledging and setting us within that that world specifically and and doing a pretty good job of of writing uh, writing gay characters. Uh, I mean, um, there's a that really tender and really great scene where, <clears throat> where uh, Lee is, is is going back to her apartment and uh, Jack is with her, and we see that her apartment is just sort of this like horrific mess. And she, in her embarrassment, forces everyone out of the apartment. Says like, "All right, get out of here," you know, whatever. And she closes the door, and then we hear Jack sort of saying from behind the door, suggesting like, "Lee, it's okay. Like, I want to help." Um, and and in the end, when Richard E. Grant, um, in in the uh, what is it, the 
the epilogue, the written epilogue for the movie that actually tells us about the fates of these actual human beings, these people that these these characters are based on. We learned that Jack uh, did in fact die of AIDS in um, sort of a men's care center, that being um, one of the many places that were set up uh, in New York to care for men dying of AIDS. And a majority of those places were were manned and over, overseen by women and most of those women gay. Um, so there was really this, this sort of like this sort of support network of uh, of gay individuals in that era, uh, trying to trying to help each other navigate a, a extremely antagonistic world, especially as concerns uh, a total disregard for or or or, or like a, a lack of investment in uh, helping people through the AIDS crisis. So I, I think that those moments really do come through in the script. So so I don't know. I, again, this is this is one where it's. I, I find myself jumping from one foot to the other with the, the script and the performances, but uh, I think the characters are written very well in that regard. I'm really glad you brought up this idea of community um, because I think what this movie nails is two lonely, desperate people finding each other at a particular moment in time, which is such like a movie thing to do, but I think so incredibly effective as we see this you know, she kind of remembers him. They like, met at a party years ago, but forming this really fast uh, friendship, drinking buddy friendship, uh, really trying to help each other. And then uh, Richard E. Grant, who is selling um, Coke laced with like baby powder and other stuff or laxatives, I think he was saying too later, sort of him coming in, you know, into her orbit in this criminal operation. I think it was just a really fascinating journey to watch these two people go on. And I think I also liked that the movie didn't make a big deal about her homosexuality of mm-hmm. like, she just, you know, the Anna who runs the bookstore that she sells one of the first letters to sort of like, know that you, you know, she's a pretty main side character and then eventually they go on a date. And I think what an interesting place to put Lee Israel in uh, the character to sort of see, like she had this long-term relationship that we don't really learn a whole lot about. Um, even at the end, we still don't know a whole lot about the dynamic, but someone who really, but, but- you know, but that scene at the end uh, in the park with like her old partner, I thought is such a, is such a beautiful and tender scene as well. And so it does, you are introduced into sort of lar- her like larger world or larger relationships, but it just like a little moment, but still that has emotional resonance, at least the way that the way I saw it. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt on her. No, I love that. I think this moment, this this movie is filled with many really wonderful details from a lot of the side characters. Um, I forget his name, but the guy who sort of has the friend who knew Noel Coward, who's one of the letters that she's forging. I think his book, he has like this blonde mustache, his mannerisms are interesting, like the way he, I don't know, it's like lots of very interesting little side characters um, in this film. So it feels like a very... Um, in a good way, like New York's the character, like it doesn't go that route because this takes place almost exclusively in Manhattan. Um, but it really kind of fleshes out these bookstores and the people who are interacting, you know, with these items and these books, I think in a really compelling and interesting way. It does draw it out sort of, that world very well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love the scene too, where they go on the, um, I guess there's like conventions of these literary objects around the country. And so Israel and Hawk go to one of these conventions and he's, just so great of like kind of like mocking people that's just sort of his thing because he just doesn't quite understand this world or doesn't really care but i think all the like competing people who are trying to sell these historic documents um instead of like donating them for the public to see but selling them for like thousands of dollars like i thought that the idea of like a literary object convention circuit i thought was like you know really interesting to see any thoughts on sort of the side characters or any other things related to the world building this might be weird as a side character, but um, Lee's cat, um, I feel like, is such a, a big catalyst of the whole movie and the whole story. I, you know, it's hard to watch it unfold, honestly, because like you, I think at the very beginning, you know that something bad is going to happen to this cat. And it's it's always these moments where like my, my cat was in my lap after the the the, the cat dies at the, at the end and it was just like holding her so close because like I I can't imagine that moment of just knowing that your friend accidentally killed your cat um and and the fact that Lee's able to sort of 
move on after that and even forgive Jack. I, th- I think that that's, you know, it takes a lot of strength to do that because I, I don't think that I would. I thought Jack didn't kill the cat, but it, it was just bad timing. It seems he pours out, like, I think there's a shot where he pours too much medicine onto the cat's food oh, when he's too, supposed, okay, it's supposed to be in his care because he's distracted <laughs> with sort of a fling that he has going on. And he's also smoking in the apartment when he shouldn't be. She lays out all these rules and then he violates them all right away. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah, so now I'm reimagining the, yeah, the pouring like half the bottle of medication <laughs> into the cat food. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he killed that cat. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly didn't know papers. And the cat's name was Jersey. I thought that was really cute too. So we've you know talked a lot about our main characters, some side ones. Let's get into the actual criminal plot of Could You Ever Forgive Me, which is also kind of a heist movie, which is something I did not think about until I was watching. Yeah. Um, which I think will be interesting to just talk about it since we just talked about four heist movies just a few months ago. Um, I think this is a really ingenious plot. And I think what a great... I think the strongest part of the movie is probably the first third. Um, we are introduced to Lee very, very quickly. I think with some great lines. I just want to touch on real quick. The movie opens, you see her at a desk, you know, it's uh, New York, 1991, based on true story, 3am. Um, and I just feel like we learn about her so quickly in this time. The first line of dialogue that we hear is I swear she's older than my mom. And then, the, you know, her friend saying, I'd kill myself if I was still doing this by her age. They walk away, and then um, Lee Israel says, I'll kill you now if you ask me nicely. Um, and then she goes to take a drink. Coworker reminds her there's no eating or drinking in the workplace. She yells, fuck off at these people. Accidentally says her, tells her boss to fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Fired. This is maybe 30 seconds, and I think we know all we need to know about Lee Israel in the professional world and how she shows herself to the outside. And then she comes home to her apartment, dead flies on the pillow. She kind of brushes them off, flips it over. Uh, her apartment is not very well lit, kind of looks like a hoarder's house. Um, but she loves her cat. Cat is maybe sick, maybe not too interested, you know, wags his tail. Um, and I think just within this first like minute, we sort of see outside life, inside life, which I think is really interesting uh, and a very interesting place to drop a character in a crime movie, which this ostensibly is. And so she's a struggling writer. We see visually that she's struggling, see that she doesn't do great personal dynamics. And so as she's doing research for this Fanny Bryce uh, biography that she's going to write, uh, she's in the library, opens up a book, and I believe it's two letters fall out that were like tucked away in the book, which were letters, um, I believe, written by Catherine Hepburn to Fanny Bryce, I believe is what it was. And so she finds these notes, which are super cool. And then the sort of later she gets the idea that, oh, you could sell these. I can edit them. I can make them from scratch. And that these items go for hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. And as somebody who needs to pay rent, who needs to take their animal to the vet, I think things that a lot of us watching the movie can relate to, um, she's really pushed to this, you know, crime. And she's not really hurting. She's not really hurting anybody at least she thinks but then i think the film does a great job of showing how these ramifications you know affect other people in the world so what are your sort of thoughts on the idea of a literary forger something that jack in the film sort of laughs at as what is this not you're not forging checks or anything like that so what do you guys think about her plan to make money uh i mean i think it's I, i think it's some of the most interesting stuff in the film i mean especially how as we've talked about before she is so she has such a zest and zeal for uh for for literature and for people's individual dynamic narrative voices tones and prose um and how well she is able to replicate that i mean so much so that like people reading it like not the authenticators but the the distributors the people that are buying these to resell them just like remark every time it's like, oh my God, that's the incisive wit that this this author is known for. And she's so good at codifying and recapturing that. Someone who's writing an original thing as an addendum to their their work in their voice, I think is really cool. I really like that she goes the distance when she starts making some money from the earlier versions of these to buy of era typewriters for each individual author. 
Uh, we see her at one point baking paper in her oven, sort of like aging the paper somehow. I, I, I don't know exactly how that works, but that being like a detail and feature of it too, to age the paper or to make the ink uh, more, more authentic or seemingly more authentic. All of that coming together is really a, a really great attention to detail that I'm glad the movie dedicates time to. Uh, apparently, so maybe putting, more of that. apparently putting paper in the oven to make it look older was a tip off apparently to them being forged checks because, or forged checks, forged letters because uh, writers like Dorothy Parker or Fanny Bryce would have written on finer stationery that would have mm. actually withstood colorate, like discoloration over time. And so the I fact see. that it was discolored clued like investigators into that, like the fact that it was forged, which I thought was kind of an interesting <laughs> twist. <laughs> so yeah, perhaps over invested in her confidence in her, uh, her scheme. Yeah. But I totally agree with Dave. Yeah, it, I think the most fascinating parts are, and I, I, you mentioned this earlier, Connor, kind of also the that sort of interesting space between authorship and like embodying somebody else's voice. Like she made money being a ghostwriter for like all these famous people. And so not only was she herself have this like intense wit and masterful writing skill, but also she was skillful at embodying the character and embodying the voice of somebody she was supposed to be writing for uh, and inhabiting their own voice. And so, I, yeah, Connor, you mentioned kind of that fine line and like the fine line between like plagiarism, forgery and doing a job of of either being a ghostwriter or of appreciating the craft of somebody else by adopting it as your own voice, like narrative voice. I mean, what she did was, <laughs> was illegal, but like, I think this, there are moments where you see her in front of the typewriter and kind of looking at the letters and sort of also you hear her own, you see her interacting with other people. So you know that she's got this sort of uh, biting wit. And then when she writes those letters with that same, like, uh, like sense of her own, her own personality. You're like, Oh, this is like her cre This is like her craft. And like, she's fulfilling that now. Yeah. Once again, it's forgery, but I was sort of very caught up in like, like listening to her come up with these, uh, these, these letters and these lines and, and yeah, inhabit those different voices. Especially as, as she becomes prouder and more invested in that being her thing. Like yes. it, it, there's it reaches a point where like she's even she's telling him, uh, Jack, like, listen, these aren't just like, you know, I'm not just embellishing these. I, I'm creating she's creating her own. Um, I don't know. Uh, homage or like embodiment or, or replica or imitation of someone else. But it's also still her wholly original ideas and thoughts expressed in their voice. Um, and that in a way she is the author of these forgeries, uh, in spite of selling them as another author's work. So yeah, it's that, that part of it becomes really interesting. There's a line where I think she's quoting one of the letters says I was born 30 years too late. And I think part of that is that she's also, you know, I think thinking about herself being born in this different time at the beginning, I forgot to mention this detail. We see her reciting an old movie. Um, so there is this like romantic part of her, but I was also thinking on this rewatch, feeling bad for her that she wasn't born 30 years later or born, you know, like was of that, you know, of a younger age in the 21st century. Cause what she's doing is basically fan fiction for real people. Um, and somebody yeah. who really wants to have creative control wants to have, you know, unfortunately she has to go through this system to find an audience, this literary system. Just imagine what she could do if she could do a podcast or a YouTube channel or a blog. Like it just sort of made me think about like, Oh, you were like 30 years away. Um, from being able to create your own things and have an audience, but you were just stuck at this time being born in 1939 and writing in the 70s, 80s, and 90s where you just had to go through these systems and it was so much more difficult to share your own voice. So I think on this rewatch for me, that added and sort of extra tragic element um, to this, you know, her forgery escapade. We talked uh, a little earlier about um, kind of, this movie being also sort of insight into like 
her, her, her loneliness and, and desire for friendship and companionship. And we see her develop those relationships with Jack, with the woman in the big bookstore, but also that act of writing and, and forging these letters, but with her own voice, that was also an act uh, or like a sort of a developing relationship she was having with these these writers and these figures that she clearly cared a lot about. Um, and so that act of embodiment, as you were saying, Dave, is also like uh, sort of an act of sort of solace in like caring about a character or, or a person or something like that. Um, and that creative pursuit being that like establishing of that relationship too. Yeah, which again goes back to her love of her genuine love of literature that it is the written word can transcend, you know, uh, multiple people. It can, it can speak to whoever, um, and it can, yeah, it can really inspire, uh, it, it, in this case inspires, you know, uh, theft and forgery, but it, it also inspires, uh, you know, what, what she acknowledges is perhaps some of her best writing, even though it is in someone else's voice. So, yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, how many books do we all own that is obviously, you know, someone publishing their own book that is clearly written as a sort of pseudo imitation of someone else's voice? And is it perhaps more honest to just do an outright forgery? I don't know. <laughs> the the one thing, though, that I think is just so dangerous is eventually sort of what tips her hand, which is that one letter where um, she kind of explicitly mentions the the author's sexuality, um, which the, the person who's like an expert on this guy is like, he would have never, because it was illegal. Mm. You know, I, I do think that's where things get a little dangerous too, because, um, you know, like that's clearly her overstepping just a little bit and and rewriting um this person's history and it makes me wonder like how often has that happened um and then you know again the existential crisis rolls in like is anything we read real how do we know no connor's like no i think what rewatching it that choice that she made to talk about where no coward she's writing for openly talking about his homosexuality is also her trying to make more money because the more salacious a letter is, the more money she'll get for it, which is uh, mm-hmm. an idea that is you know, hammered in our heads throughout the movie. Nobody wants something about writing about their travel itinerary. They want talking about love, gossip, um, you know, making fun of people, things like that. And so she's sort of doing the thing that she was fighting against with Tom Clancy, that idea of like, he's a best-selling author because he writes for what people want to read. And so eventually her forgeries, Sam, as you brought up, were kind of losing this historical authenticity because she was writing to make more money to sell more of these documents. So that was like, kind of like a light bulb moment for like, oh, what a great like thematic downfall for this um, scheme. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if it was a creative fiction piece, maybe it's a Hurt like it's a storyline she would have written and been invested in as a as a character and as a story. And so it's like, I think that's also the distinction between like, yeah, obviously a real person and creating creating a forgery of a real person's letter versus like creating, yeah, a stack of fictitious letters of a cre- a created persona or a created character. I mean, I think at that point those lines were blurred and as she, yeah, she was sort of like going off on her own sort of imaginings of, of what these conversations would be like. Um, which it kind of made me think of like, uh, what we were talking about in our discussion of the movie water, watermelon woman, where it's like this blurring of, of, uh, understanding the past. And, and in this case, uh, like an old silent film character, was turned into like a real person in the framework of the movie, uh, even though this person didn't exist and a whole life existed for this actress. And that, and like, yeah, I I don't have a whole point, but it was it was definitely interesting thinking about kind of, yeah, like what realm does a story exist in, and that therefore what does it enable a person? What kind of story does it enable a person to do, especially looking at historic or people and people of the past? And what's the difference between historical fiction and forgery? Too, I think I was yeah, part of yeah, me was thinking sure. about like, what if she just wrote 
a historical fiction about all these people that she loved and like in a novel form or like it, uh, the novel, you know, the Christopher Nolan's movie, the prestige based off of a book that's essentially just letters going back and forth between Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale's character. I think it's some construction like that. And so she could have maybe written a book like that of these fake letters from these real people, like fictionalized versions of them. And so it just like, I feel like hit extra hard, this idea of like, she had such like an, a passionate idea she was passionate about clearly inspired by and if she just made a few different tweaks or lived in a little bit of a different time um she could have been incredibly successful and incredibly happy instead of living you know seemingly unhappy life that she was living but then she wrote her memoir and then yeah i mean i don't know i do you have any details on like was her was her memoir successful? Did people? It was it? a New York Times bestseller for there we go. Whatever that means, <laughs> which is also an I'd be actually interested to read the memoir now, having seen the movie, and I think that is also a whole other discussion of like her retelling of her story and uh, how this unfolded, and like how does this story compare to what really happened, and then how does Marielle Hell or the screen? I can't remember the screenwriter's name, but how does her interpretation of the memoir plus Marielle Heller's direction through that lens. How does that transform the story? Like that's a whole, yeah. (laughs) Right. Does it become like proof of concept in terms of it being kind of a whisper down the alley on this endless loop? I I did look up a few things about um, the memoir versus the movie. Apparently Jack's role um, in Lee's life was exaggerated for the movie to sort of help give it this um, odd couple dynamic which I think was a good choice because it works toward the movie's emotional and thematic strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, but is that forgery? Uh, also, apparently, um, sort of scenes were exaggerated about her going on, like this, you know, uh, book is, you know, uh, Anna, the bookshop owner, I don't think ever existed. She was created for the movie, um, from what I think from what I was reading. And so it's just also, yeah, the idea of like adaptation, like how far down does something change where it can still be considered authentic, which brings me back to the Anthony Bourdain controversy where the this new documentary that just came out that has a lot of buzz, but apparently the director um, took fed like hours and hours of Anthony Bourdain's voice into an kind of like AI program and had it speak three quotes that he wrote down in a book, but actually never said in real life. And he on Twitter said he got permission from the family, from the estate but then his wife came out in the news, like, I never gave him permission. Like, I would never have agreed to this. And so that's like, he did write those down. His voice is on, you know, all these programs that you can watch anywhere. So I think it's an interesting, I don't know, just made me think about this. And also the fact that we are, that we can take dead actors and computer put their faces on people. It's like, it's all kind of tied out of, this is all that I was thinking about today of like, what, where does authenticity stop? And where does it begin? And what, you know, those lines change throughout time. Yeah, it's sort of like that Fred Astaire vacuum commercial. Do tell, what is the Fred Astaire oh, vacuum just, commercial? There's, they, they took some of Fred Astaire's dancing and superimposed it onto someone dancing with a vacuum cleaner to sell vacuums after he was dead, which is weird. Especially now that we live in this day and age where, like, so much is like IP, you know, so much is intellectual property driven. Like the new Space Jam movie is all about scanning LeBron James into Warner Brothers servers so he can interact with Game of Thrones, Looney Tunes, like all the other IP that Warner Brothers has amassed over the decades. Wait, what? No, you it's know like what? The, I, don't even tell me. I'm just going to I'll just watch it, I guess. Don Cheadle is an AI program who apparently runs Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers is run by an AI program. Okay. (laughs) Without going down a Space Jam rabbit hole, um, I just wanted to wrap up sort of concluding how this sort of, um, we talked about kind of her downfall, but really getting into it. So feds are on her case. The FBI is looking for her. One of the disreputable, um, we're told it's disreputable, uh, like antique seller says, you know, goes to her and says, oh, the FBI came to me. They want me to wear a wire. Don't worry, I'm not going to sell you out, but you got to pay me $5,000. And so which she thought was an act of kindness looking out for each other was actually just another grift to make money. And so that really ramps up her production of these letters, make them bigger, saucier. Eventually, um, you know, she has Jack be the one now who's going into these places to sell them and through his charm and his blue eyes, um, 
which he says all you need in New York is blue eyes and um, some street smarts to get ahead um, at the beginning of the movie. Sell them. He gets arrested by or at least detained by the FBI, apparently sells her out. And then she has a corner court arraignment to yeah, get a sentence for all of these crimes. So very quick downfall. Um, I think it makes sense that Jack would sort of sell her out to save his own skin. Um, even though they're friends, that sort of seems like he's always kind of been out for himself. There's a few scenes where he's taking money from her. So that didn't, you know, really surprise me. And sort of the big theft at the end of the movie, which is kind of a weird scene. She goes to Yale to replace real letters with forgeries of her own, like the Yale archives, which I thought was sort of a weird scene, especially after watching like four heist movies in a row a couple months ago. Felt very like I feel like if we were to start, you know, ratcheting up the pacing or the editing or like that would be the time to do it when she is actually like a huge crime, like robbing from a huge university of historic documents is like much, I feel like a much more serious crime than selling forged letters. So, how do you guys sort of feel about kind of Jack's turn and sort of the end and kind of wrapping up with the sentence of a very generous sentence of five months on probation? I think they have five years on probation and six months on house arrest sort of the comeuppance for i don't know how to charge a crime like this so I, yeah. I don't i don't have the knowledge of legalese uh, sufficient enough to say whether or not that's uh that's fair but yeah i don't know <laughs> i don't have a great answer either so i was just wondering if anybody else kind of had thoughts on that it's not a victimless crime i suppose so um i was um one of my best friends used to be a CEO and now she's a parole officer. And we had a conversation over this weekend where she told me that so many things that we all think is a nonviolent crime actually isn't. It really depends on the state that a person is in. Um, and I don't know if this would count as a violent crime. I don't. I mean, I would really be surprised. But because they're technically our victims, I wonder... Um, I just, I wonder what was going through that judge's mind, but like also as she's speaking to the court, she's, she kind of wavers. She goes back and forth where she's like, I'm not sorry. I'd do it again. Um, but then it's like clear that she does have some kind of remorse, perhaps not for her actions, but for something. So like that is also has to play, right? Like you're not sorry. You just sorry. I think that I think that this is a big final monologue, and I'm glad you brought this up, Sam. Where she does say, "I don't regret anything," but then she does kind of walk that back. And it was, you know, she says like the most exciting time, maybe of her life. I think is what she says. And undoubtedly, you know, money was coming in. She had this friendship with Jack, but then I think that's why I think the character of Anna was really important to flesh out this sort of date that she went on because that was a victim, somebody personal to her, who gave her some of her writing to read. And that must have been a huge, she must have felt a huge uh, betrayal. I think maybe the very end of the movie tries to make a statement to that effect. I mean, the very end of the movie, we see her go into a shop. Um, one of her forgeries is prominently on sale for a pretty exor an exorbitant amount of money. And she basically uh, drafts a letter, a new forgery, um, not for sale, but to the shop owner in that that author's voice to illustrate that like hey what you have probably isn't legitimate and we do see him like the shop owner go to reclaim this from the window to take it down and like remove it from the sale but then he hesitates and he just leaves it up so uh, in the sense that like i don't know it yeah it has, it's a mixed bag because like, we do see her her actions impact the lives of other people in a way that we could consider them victims but it, it's also it feels at the very end like a condemnation of that entire industry because at the end of the day, those people are going to sell them anyway. You know what I mean? So there's going to be victims regardless. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it, that's, a, that's a tricky one. I, I got kind of two thoughts. One, I think that's a great final scene for the movie that he does put it back because there still is this monetary incentive put in place, even if it's not real, like it doesn't really matter. Also kind of reminded me of the end of Logan Lucky when the racetrack owners are saying, oh, it's fine, we'll just take the insurance money and like this actual crime, destruction of property, uh, like didn't actually like matter. So I think it kind of reminded me of the end of Logan Lucky a little as well in terms of like how people feel about the money that was taken or the actions that were done. It's yeah, it also reminded about. me of um, American Animals and I was like, 
Mm-hmm. What she did was so much less harmful. <laughs> well, I, okay. Again, I'm not going to. No, it's less harmful. Yeah, Someone was like, She did one. not tie up a librarian and leave her on the floor. Like, and, and I thought that movie, as we talked about, like really did a wonderful job of conveying the like horror of that scene. Uh, but when she walks into that archive, I was just like, <laughs> it also just took me back to American Animals. It's just like those scenes like, are wildly different. <laughs> she's she's going to walk in with old age makeup for the first time and oh, scout right. things out. Yeah. She's not a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was Can You Ever Forgive Me? Any final thoughts as... Uh, uh, we're wrapping up this episode. I do have a, I do have an interesting fact if you guys want to hear that. So apparently this movie was initially cast with Julianne Moore mm-hmm. as Lee Israel and Sam Rockwell as Richard, as uh, Jack Hawk. And apparently um, Julianne Moore said she was fired from the movie, according to her words. But the studio, I don't think, ever made any official statement. From uh, what I hear, she wanted to wear a fat suit and they were not happy about that. I think it would, that would be a very interesting movie that I would love to get a peek into an alternate reality. What did that film look like? And then take a step back because that would be different, but I'd be intrigued. A can you ever forgive me multiverse? Good Lord. <laughs> can you ever forgive the making of alternate movies of this movie <laughs> and the terrible choices they choose to make? Well, thank you yeah. so much. Oh, sorry, Dave, go ahead. Oh, no, just, yeah, a whirlwind of different things to consider and a lot of different conflicting and competing things. So I don't know. It's, uh, this movie's a lot to unpack. I think this conversation has illuminated a lot more about it than I, I took it uh, at its face value. So it's been an interesting conversation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Doing a little podcast host boogie dance. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me, for watching this movie. Listeners at home, if you've seen this film, uh, be sure to let us know. You can give us an email at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, butterwiththat1. Anything else folks want to plug as we're winding down? Oh, if you've seen Loki too, let us know. I would love to hear our listeners' thoughts on Loki. And the Movie John Podcast Network, where you can find this podcast as well as other great Philly movie podcasts. Uh, so be sure to have a look. J-A-W-N. Dave, I love when you started that a few uh, a few months ago. That really... The spelling of John. Yeah, I mean, if, yeah. It, it, I think for folks who don't live in the region, it's probably a necessary uh, clarification. But. Have you seen that uh, meme going around the billboard saying, pour this John and that John? It's like off no. of 95 or something. And it's like a water, like a vitamin water billboard or something. Anyway, have a wonderful whatever. and um, Have a good whatever. Dusk, evening, morning, whenever you're listening to this. And have a good whatever. <laughs>